This edition of The Meaningful Life is a very special one. It is our 50th edition. And to celebrate, I've invited the man who I turn to when I need help, Jungian therapist James Hollis, who's written many books which I recommend on this podcast. It will be the first time I've met him and I can't wait to share his wisdom with you. But before I do that, 50 episodes is a good time to remind you about my supporters club. It costs me a significant amount of money to create this podcast. I'm an independent producer, and each week I dip into my own pocket to pay for engineering, technical support, and all the necessary backup. I believe I'm creating something special here, a weekly support capsule of ideas about how to lead a more meaningful life. And I'm in the process of creating a community to support this goal too, and I would like your help. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please support me by becoming a patron. Details of how to gain my eternal gratitude go to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. And now, here comes the 50th edition. We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to a special edition of The Meaningful Life. We're 50 episodes old, and to mark this landmark, I've invited someone whose writing has sustained me through my dark times and helped inspire the creation of this podcast. James Hollis is a Jungian analyst and the author of 15 books, many of which I use with my clients. The three I return to the most are Swamplands of the Soul, which is all about those feelings we'd rather not have, like anger, fear and despair, Under Saturn's Shadows, which helps men understand their wounds and how to help heal them, and Living the Examined Life, which I often recommend on this podcast. There are many topics we could discuss, but it takes resilience to reach 50 episodes of a podcast. Most podcasters don't make 10. Secondly, there are few certainties beyond things won't go according to our plans, so we have to develop some resilience. Thirdly, James has recently published Living Between Worlds, Finding Personal Resilience in Changing Times. So, James, welcome to The Meaningful Life. It's great to have you on the podcast. Can you explain to me what you mean by resilience? Well, we all have a certain inherent or native strength that nature has given us, and it's allowed our species to survive through the millennia. But we get separated, of course, when we're tiny, small, dependent, vulnerable. We overlearn the message that I'm powerless here. There's nothing I can do to to cope with this. And so... At certain points in our lives, we're thrown back upon our own resources, and we realize no one is going to fix it for us. No one's going to solve the problem for us. It's up to us, and we have to work it through. And we have to remember that this species has survived on a perilous planet for those millennia by calling upon an inherent natural strength. And there's an old saying, you get through things by getting through them. And as Sir Winston once said, when you're in a dark forest, keep walking. The point being simply, that's how you get through these difficult times. You mentioned Swamplands of the Soul, and if I could just say very briefly about that. 
none of us wants to fall into a depression or deal with anxiety states or experience losses and so forth. But invariably, life will bring them to us. And in every one of those, we feel victimized, we feel powerless. And yet in every one of those swampland states, there is a task, there's a summons to us that if we can address it, accept that, it can help carry us through. And we come out the other side. We at least retain our own sense of personal, emotional, and spiritual sovereignty and our own sense of integrity in, in the process. So I would say resilience is the strength nature gives us to survive, to adapt, and ultimately to experience the possibility of a meaningful response to those circumstances over which we may have no outer control. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's something that's actually already there within us, rather mm-hmm. than something we have to go out and we have to get that's and right. learn from five tips sort of kind of approach. That's right. I think one of the biggest deceptions in our time is the simplification of this process we call life. You go to self-help sections of bookstores and you see 30 days to this or that, five easy steps to this path. If they worked, we would know it. And maybe you'd only need one book because that would take care of your problems. Life is much more fractious and difficult than that. And so all of us essentially have to persist in pursuing the life we want to live under circumstances in which we're not always in control. So I think what's been oversold is do these things and it'll all work for you. Rather, I would say we have to start trusting something within us that if we stay in touch with that, if we consult that, if we risk that, it will serve us better than any advice from the outer world, including my advice to you at this moment. So does resilience look different at 80 than it might have done when you were 40? Yes, I'm 81 now. I spent most of 2020 not only dealing with the pandemic, but with two different cancers went through multiple surgeries, radiation, chemo, infusion, uh, suppression shots, et cetera, et cetera. And during that time, I wrote two more books, saw my patients the whole time. I was getting up at 5 a.m. to have radiation at 7 in order to be back by 9 o'clock to uh, start my day. And it wasn't that I was being heroic. I was being very selfish. What I was wanting to do is retain as much of the life I value as I could under the circumstances. And so the motto that I adopted for myself during that time was militant submission, a deliberate oxymoron. I was submitting to the body, which is, after all, part of who we are. I was submitting to the medical regimen and the interruptions to my life, my schedule, and so forth. But I was militant about it. I was going to stay as active as I could manage, not in denial, but in respectful relationship to the need to take care of the body. And I look upon that as one of those many things that we get through. Now, I would have probably seen it quite differently at 40. You're right. I guess at 81, I'm used to getting through more things now than I was even then. Do you think there's more patience at 80 than 40? Certainly. I think the two most difficult things I've ever learned as a therapist and as a human being, I still despise, and that is patience and powerlessness. And you know, as a therapist, we often have to sit and hold something for a very long time with our clients. And yet, somehow, something tends to come through 
out of that relationship, out of that holding, out of that focus of, of energies. And when we do that, we realize, again, something within that person has been supporting that process that rises to, to help them. So patience and powerless are, are not uh, virtues in my estimation, but they're necessarily survival mechanisms, that's for sure. So what did you learn about patience from being a patient? Well, I learned, for example, while I was waiting for radiation, I was sitting with a lot of other folks waiting for the same thing, all of whom were at various stages of health. And everybody was looking at the floor. Nobody would look at anybody else. And I realized why. It was not only a frightening experience for them. In some profound way, they felt almost ashamed by their vulnerability, I suppose. So I'm an introvert. And yet I felt at that point a, a deep need for connection with those folks. I guess I couldn't stop being a therapist even there. But I started asking simple questions like, do you have a long way to drive to get here? And that was such an innocuous question, began to open things up. And I made a point of sometimes bringing a joke and so forth. Not something frivolous, but in time, a certain sense of camaraderie, even community arose out of the folks, because we all tended to be there at a certain time of day. And of course, people were coming and going as they finished their treatment or entering and, and so forth. And I spent my time getting to know the technicians as they're doing their work. And I wouldn't say that was typical of me, because as I said, I'm an introvert. I tend to keep my mouth shut in the presence of strangers. But to me, it felt important to take a stand in the face of the fears that people were facing. Uh, I didn't find myself afraid. I, I've accepted my mortality a long time ago. I, I've actually been living, I think, on borrowed time. And I'm grateful for that time. My, my biggest fear of death is not wanting to leave my wife, frankly, who is 80 and will need my help from time to time, as well as companionship. I'm still curious. I still have things I want to know about and to learn. I've just finished the manuscript of another book. And during this time, it's been a very rich experience for me because one of the beauties of mortality is it reminds us that we're here a very short time. I have a friend, Oliver Berkman, who's an Englishman, by the way, who just published a book called 4,000 Weeks, in which he said, if you live to 80, that's what you get, 4,000 weeks. It's not that long when you think about it. All of humankind, as we know it, has been a little over 300,000 weeks. So we, we, we realize that mortality is that which makes life meaningful, because it requires then for me to make choices, knowing that I can't just do this for a century, and then I can do something else for a century, then do something else for a century, then life would lose its savor. It's because our choices matter, our values matter, that we are able to live a richer life. And I can't imagine at this point in my life living a richer life than I'm living now, because I'm privileged to spend this part of my journey with folks in difficult times in their lives. To be invited to that conversation is such a privilege. I'm in good relationship with my partner. I'm still growing and learning. And we all know there are difficulties in this world that we need to address. So what more could we ask for in life? So what makes us struggle? You have a very good quote that I'm going to ask you to sort of expand on, 
that what makes us struggle? You say there's a death of something, naivety, the old roadmap, a plan, an expectation, a strategy, a story, and so on. And what is to come is not yet present, not available, at least not conscious. So can you unpack that for me? Sure. The book was about, and the theme's been touched on in many other books, we're always in between something, where we were, where we're headed. Sometimes those nodules of in-betweenness, if I may coin that word, are of some length, weeks, months, sometimes even years. Time when our understanding of self and, and world or our marching orders or our roadmap for our life no longer fits the terrain in which we find ourselves. In those situations, what we are obliged to do is hold on and to wait and be observant and to be open. Naturally, we would like to have the old order reestablished because the human ego has basically a very simple agenda, and that's as much control and command as can possibly achieve. But life is always slipping away from us in some way. So the future belongs to the flexible, in a sense, to know that we have to go through change. One of the things I've become increasingly aware of, having gone through over eight decades of change, is these changes are going to happen in any case. And the key is for the ego to say, all right, what is appropriate to me at this stage of the journey? What is life asking of me? There was a time when learning to walk and to talk and to play with playmates was our chief agenda. Now is a time for those of us who are adults to look around and say, is this world that I'm living in, is this set of values, these constructs that I serve, are they in some way serving me? In other words, do they give me a sense of purpose and well-being, a sense of challenge? may not be easy. We're not spared conflict or suffering. But then to ask the question, all right, what, what is most meaningful here? You know, we're the animal that suffers the disconnect from meaning. And with meaning, all things are possible, it seems to me. I think that's what happened to me while waiting in the cancer wards for treatment. It was a profoundly meaningful time. Plus, I also recognize the gift of those who were there in service to me, namely the medical staff. And I wanted to establish a personal relationship to them in their world that is so repetitive in so many ways and so mechanistic, if you will. Those are those invitations to meaningful experience. And when you have them, then what you're going through becomes secondary. And when you don't have them, you know, life can be very, very difficult. And that's the reason this podcast is called The Meaningful Life. It's actually yes. trying to help you hear the invitations. But I have to ask the question, how do these invitations arrive? You know, how do we recognize that this is an invitation to a more meaningful life? I suppose in most cases, it arises out of some hardship or some suffering. As much as we'd hate to admit it, many of the most important areas of growth in our life have come out of difficult times, not the easy times. But I think wherever there is a deep sense of resonance within that person, that is to say, when I engage some situation and inside it sets off the tuning fork, so to speak, then I know is something very important at stake. Then I know there's an issue of meaning, a value conflict. You know, Jung said once all neuroses are conflicts of value. So we always have 
conflicting values going on within us. And that kind of internalized conflict is often debilitating. If a person, let's say in the context of their life or their therapy or whatever, has to make a profound choice about a relationship, what are they to do? Or a choice about changing their careers, let's say. Or they've lost some of their traditional values and are feeling adrift in that area. What are they supposed to do with that? So those those are moments when there is a profound invitation to the task of meaning. And I've suggested a couple of questions with regard to that. When you come to decisive moments in your life, junctures of choice, if you will, ask the question, does this path enlarge me or does it diminish me? Or does this path enlarge me or diminish me? I submit that most of the time we know the answer to those questions. And can we also say of a certain behavior, particularly a stuck place in our lives, where is this coming from in me? What led to that decision? And, you know, the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. So we can't technically talk about it. And yet it keeps spilling into the world. And I've said to many folks who've asked the question, well, where do I start this process of personal analysis, whether you're seeing a therapist or not? And I say, start with your patterns, particularly the ones that you find conflictual for you or harmful to you or others. Recognize that what we do is always logical based on the intrapsychic issue or premise it's in service to. So we can take the pattern and say it's a logical expression of something that has some energy in me. And I can work my way backwards into potentially understanding what that might be. In many cases, it's an infantile experience. It's fear-based. It's in some way an old accommodation or it's an old avoidance. And that's what keeps us locked in, keeps us stuck. One of the things that people come to therapy for, I mean, why would someone go talk to a total stranger? It's because their own system of coping isn't working. That's, that's why. And so they often feel stuck. And wherever we're stuck in the underground, there's a pool of anxiety that gets triggered when we try to get unstuck. So we always have to interrogate the history of that person and say, all right, what's the anxiety that is triggered in this person's life? Now, anxiety itself is free-floating, amorphous, like fog over the motorway. Uh, Fear is specific. So can we identify fears in the anxiety? So let's say a person wants to make a large decision in their life about relationship or career or something of that magnitude, but they feel blocked, they're stuck. And that happens to all of us at some point. So then you have to say, all right, what are the fears in there? Well, I I fear failure. I fear losing the approval and understanding of others. I fear being out there on the end of the branch by myself. Okay. Name the fear. Ask yourself, is that really going to happen? Probably not, if you make a decision. And if it were to happen, remember, you're an adult now you have the strength, the resilience to carry through on whatever that option might be for you. When you do that, you see, then you're not bound by that disabling power of fear that sort of metastasizes in very vague forms as anxiety. So it doesn't sound like a great move to move from anxiety to fear, 
But fear is specific and can be addressed by the adult in a way that may have been overwhelming to the child. So you talk about healing in three separate moves, so to speak. I would perhaps call them stages. So I'm going to take you through them to expand what you mean on them, because I think they're really helpful. And the first one of these is to recover personal authority. Now, at first sight, that sounds really easy. Of course, we've got personal authority, but actually recovering it and actually finding our personal authority is harder than we think. So first of all, explain what you mean, and then how do we deal with it? Sure. Well, we have personal authority when we're young. It's called instinct. But again, because we're tiny, vulnerable, and dependent, we have to trade it away in a thousand daily adaptations. And that's how we get disconnected from it. You know, in the first half of life, you're reporting to the world. What do my parents want? What does the school teacher want? What does the employer want? What does the partner want? Mobilizing ego coalescence sufficient to engage the world and create an identity out there. That's important. Second half of life, though, is a different question. And an insurgency often comes from below that says, all right, well, you've made these adaptations, but let's examine how is that working for you? I have a client who was in AA for many years, and he said the core sentence of his group was, this isn't working well for me, but I do it very well. You know, this isn't working for me at all, but I do it very well. You know, And, and so it is for all of us to some degree. And so... Underneath all of that is, all right, but of all of these possible choices and directions in my life, which ones really speak to me? Personal authority requires two things, sorting and sifting, sorting and sifting the immense traffic that's going on inside of us at any given moment. Finding the voice that comes from one's own soul. And I'm using the word soul in the original sense of the Greek word psyche. That's who we most deeply are. And then having the courage to live it in the world. And when you do, your whole system begins to support you. The feeling function supports you. The energy system supports you. Your dream supports you. And most of all, you feel the meaning of it. Otherwise, we're always running against the grain. And even though we're productive and successful by external standards, something inside never quite feels right. So the recovery of personal authority is the central project of the entire second half of life. And that half is not necessarily chronological. It occurs at such moment as a person takes that on in a very overt and conscious way. It could be late in life with the death of a partner or retirement or facing illness or losing a career or a thousand different venues can finally promote or require this sort of self-investigation. Who am I apart from my history? Who am I apart from my roles, which may be fine roles? But what is wanting expression in this world through me? That's the central question of the second half of life. So first of all, you have to recover personal authority. Then the next stage is assemble a mature spirituality. I suppose, first of all, what's an immature spirituality? And then obviously, what is a mature spirituality? An immature spirituality is is one in which I don't reflect on my values, number one, or number two, I consign my authority to a group, to a leader, to some history, however well-intended. It's not necessarily applicable to what is going on inside of me. 
a mature spirituality is one that asks us to tolerate ambiguity, that opens us up to a larger degree of depth and ambiguity, and the human ego doesn't like ambiguity. And thirdly, is one that recognizes we'll never understand. We are always being opened up by mystery. The next moment is always going to be something that will confront us, and we'll have to respond to it in a new and, and evolving way. And that's what we mean in a very general sense, because for most people, their spirituality, and I'm not criticizing anybody's belief, I want to make clear about that. But for most people, it's part of their fear management system. Now, if you can sort of look at that issue and so, say, so all right. So that this greater power is like a protection service for you. In, you, in so many you, ways it is, yes. And to recognize that's my ego trying again to manage the universe. And that's not going to work very well. In the long run, what we have to do is submit to the universe and recognize, you know, we're carried by an, an energy within us and at the mercy of the issues that go on around us. And most of it's a big blooming confusion. And it's going to stay that way. To open to the life of the spirit is one which requires of us always to say, and what are my values? Where are they coming from inside of me? And do I have the courage to live them in this world? Not in any way that's incursive on anyone else's rights or is exploitative, quite the contrary. It's about what is worthy of my service. That's the real issue. Because if we're not asking that question consciously, we'll be an unconscious service to our old fears and complexes and adaptation, or to whatever the noisiest demand outside of us happens to be at any given moment. One of the questions I sometimes ask my clients is, what do you worship? And they immediately say, nothing whatsoever. And then we look at what they spend all their time on. And you know, mm -hmm. it could be success or lots and lots of other things, or health, for example. So who is your God? What do you worship? Is quite an interesting question. That's right. No, and you put it very succinctly. He said, don't listen to what people say their religion is. Track them for a day or two and see where all their energy investments go. And in the modern world, at least in the Western world, the basic religions are materialism, hedonism, search for pleasure, and narcissism. It's all about me and a life of comfort and ease. All right. Well, those are not great crimes, but they also in some way will trivialize a person. They'll demean the depth of this journey. They often will lead to addictive behaviors just because if one is good, two must be better and three must even be better. And that's the birth of the addictive hook. And so all through this process, you see, is our claims upon our investments and our values. Where do you put your energies? Now, at 81, I can retire, I should think, but I also can't think of a better way to be spending my life than to spend it with my wife and to learn and write and study more and spend a journey with people who are kind enough to invite me to that process. And if I find something richer than that, I'll, I'll move in that direction, I can assure you. But the question ultimately is, where are you putting your energies? That tells you where your true spirituality is. And what is it in service to inside? See, that's the other question that we don't ask. 
I may do something that appears to be a good thing, but is it really coming out of an old defense against fear? Is it a codependence of some kind? Is it an effort to avoid something? Then when you smoke that out, then you begin to realize, all right, that's not coming from a good place in me. In other words, a good thing will not be good if it's coming from a bad place within us. I think this is quite a, a good question of yours that fits in with this idea of assembling a mature spirituality, and that is that we should try and live the questions, not the answers. So can you explain what you mean by that? Well, you know, Rilke said in a letter to a young poet, he said, naturally, you want the answers, but you're not prepared to live the answers. And life asks us to live them. He said, live the questions. And that's what opens your life for you. That's what gives you a journey. It's your questions, not your answers. Plus, the answers at 20 are not going to be the same as they are at 40 and 60 and 80 and so forth. So underneath all of this, the human ego's need for control, understanding, management is understandable. Life is always more elusive than that. Learning to tolerate ambiguity is the sign of a mature spirituality. So we've gone through two stages, recover personal authority, assemble a mature spirituality. And then this is the big one, choose meaning over happiness. Yes, that's always surprising when I say that to folks. Happiness is momentary, it's contextual, it's ephemeral. You can't pursue it per se, although folks try. Happiness rises out of being in right relationship to your own soul in a given moment. You know, for a person who's starving, a plate of food makes them happy. Too much food makes them obese. A person who is thirsty, a glass of water makes them happy. It's contextual. Too much water, they drown. I know people who are unhappy because they're not happy all the time. And sometimes when I've asked them, well, why do you think you should be happy all the time? Because they say, well, everybody else is. Well, how do you know that? Well, because they say so on Facebook, for example. You know, they have adoring grandchildren and so forth. And I'm serious about this. The folks think that what people say online is who they are. The reality, as we know, is always something else, always something else. And so happiness is profoundly a result of the mystery of being in right relationship. And that's not something we can always manage. In other words, I couldn't have imagined as a child that I would ever spend my life, my adult professional life, listening to people's problems all day. But I do. And the work makes me happy. What they're going through doesn't make me happy, but it makes me happy to be fortunate to share that journey with them. So you, you see, it's, it's not about feeling comfortable. It's about experiencing something in a way that is meaningful once again. And when you do that, then you realize, all right, happiness is not the goal. Meaning is. And from time to time, happiness is the byproduct. And we're grateful for that when it happens. And in fact, you talk about being a therapist as being the work of your life. That wasn't actually your first profession. You had to leave one profession to find what was actually more meaningful for you. Was that a crisis or did it happen easily? 
No, it was very much a crisis. I was an academic in my first life. My first doctorate was in the humanities, specifically in literature, comparative literature. And I enjoyed teaching very much. But at age 35 and just before, I, I experienced a very deep depression. And it sent me to my first hour of analysis. And I didn't feel like it was the beginning of the second half of life. I had served my marching orders very well. By the time I was 30, I'd achieved everything that I had set out or believed was essential in life. You know, then the psyche revolted and said, well, there's more for you to deal with. And it was a crisis. And it was that that led me ultimately to Zurich and retraining. When I went there, I was not planning to leave academia. In fact, I just saw this as taking things a step or two deeper into the process of self-learning and self-knowledge and so forth. But I came in time over the next six years, which is the time it took to transpire, uh, appreciating the kind of conversation that came out of the therapeutic engagement. There's nothing wrong with 19-year-olds, but I, I found that my conversation with 19-year-olds could never quite equal what I was experiencing with 50-year-olds or 70-year-olds. There was a time when I was, in fact, back in America, and I was shuttling between the university and a psychiatric hospital where I was doing my internship. And I came to realize that my conversations in the hospital went deeper and had far more at stake and more meaningful in a way than what was going on on the campus. And so I, I didn't leave teaching. I continue to teach. I still am teaching. But I shifted my audience, if you will, and shifted the subject matter. And so after I came back from Zurich, I continued to teach at the university for three or four years, but then started a private practice. And that led me into where I am today. The important thing was to actually listen to the crisis, the deep depression. The, Absolutely. The, the, the first response is to sort of push harder in the same old direction, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Sure, sure. In other words, it, it's sort of like saying we're in a hole, and when we're in the hole and we look at the tool in our hand, it's a shovel, so you work harder and the hole gets deeper, to our surprise. I now look back upon that as my psyche's revolt. I was needing to look at some personal issues from family of origin and, and so forth and had managed to sort of paper them over on this sort of careerism, if you will, that had dominated the first half of life. And uh, I now look upon that depression as a blessing, although I certainly didn't at the time, because I now see its purpose. It was my psyche's autonomous refusal to cooperate in the old game plan, the spontaneous withdrawal of energy. And what we don't think of at that moment is why would my psyche do that to me? It's an obvious question after the fact, but at the moment we think, well, you know, just go away and let's solve this as quickly as we can. Do you have a magic pill for that or five easy steps? No, it was the beginning of a, of a voyage through the underworld, as a matter of fact. And it was redemptive in the long run. I have no question about that. But at a price, of course. And in the analytic world, we never want to see people suffering, of course. But we know there's a meaning to that suffering. So we really have to always ask the question, what is this expression of symptomatology trying to tell us? Not how do we remove it, but 
why has it come? What change is this asking for in your life? That's a different agenda than the ego would submit. The ego would say, hey, take this away immediately. But we have to stop and say, all right, why has this come to me at this point? And what is it asking of me? And then to even ask the question that didn't occur to me at the time, but today is obvious. If where I'm putting all my energies isn't right, where would the psyche want me to put it? See? And I think in, in retrospect, just to be very much on a summary basis here, I, I think I had spent so much time cultivating the life of the mind as a compensation for the magnitude of feelings stirring within me. It was a, as a kind of defense, if you will. And they were not very happy down there. So they kept sort of nudging, you know, and pushing from below until they had their day in court, as it were. So that was about a healing process, but it only came because the more the denial consciously, the more this had to erupt from below. And that's why, in a certain way, I came to respect the fact that the human psyche really has two agendas, growth and development, number one, and self-healing. It's a self-healing system if we stop and pay attention. And this world can feel a little dangerous. You know, we're forever listening to the latest fears about the climate, politics, et cetera, et cetera. One of the, I think, the joys of reading your books is you get a longer view, but it's not just a longer view of 80 years. It's sort of this idea that the ancients have wisdom that is still useful today. So share some insights along those sort of lines. Well, one thing that's clear to me, having studied the ancient scriptures and ancient literatures and mythologies and so forth, is that the human psyche hasn't changed for thousands of years. Technology's changed. Societies have changed. Social structures, social values, social practices have changed. The human psyche is pretty much the same. And we can look at what's happening in a politician's life. We can look at what's happening in these fratricidal wars that we see all around us and see the core mechanisms of the human psyche that were being described in the ancient literatures and scriptures and so forth. So nothing new has occurred psychologically. And that tells us a lot about human nature. Possibly the wisest thing ever said about human nature was from the Latin playwright Terence, 21 centuries ago, who said, nothing human is alien to me. So I have to recognize that I am, as a human, a carrier of the whole human DNA. And in me is the capacity for good and for evil as we adjudge it to be. And I, I, before I'm in a position of judging others, I need to examine what's going on inside of myself. That's what Jung meant by the shadow. Those, those parts of ourselves or of our organizations and commitments that when brought to consciousness, we find troubling, that we find contradictory to our professed set of values and, and so forth. And so one thing is clear is in a world of confusion, in a world of competing values, each of us every day, I think, is summoned to live our values as best we can. And they really need to be thought through very carefully, felt through very carefully. 
and in a world of wrong, continue to do the good thing as you believe it to be the case. And that's what you can do. We're not going to save the world, but we will be doing something specific to help the world, I think, by being part of you know, an ongoing value system. As I mentioned, sitting there in the preparation room for all the radiations that people were going through, it was something akin to a morgue, so to speak, not a cheery place. But the human spirit was present there. And I think what was essential in all of that was someone to recognize and to start operating in those terms, because what was hardest of all of that was the isolation, that people were locked into their own fears. And once you're there and connecting in some way with someone else, even in innocuous ways at the time, the whole atmosphere changed, you see. Now, I always say that because that's not something I had in mind, I can tell you. It was something that I responded to after I was exposed to it. And I came away feeling gifted by that opportunity, that this was an opportunity to, in some, I don't want to sound grandiose here, some, some tiny, tiny way to touch something human in that person. And something human in those folks around me responded. And something human is a place that you say was like a morgue that is almost yes. the opposite yes. of human, isn't it? That's right. A place of death. Exactly. I'm just going to have to read back to you because I love it so much. Your quote from Homer's Odyssey, which you have attached to your printer in case you forget it. <laughs> I will stay with it and endure. And if the heaving seas has shaken my raft to pieces, then I will swim. Did you think of yes. that when you were doing your Odyssey into the hospital world? Sure. It's actually in my printer right here. If, if I could turn this camera around, it's probably four feet from me. Why is it there? It's a reminder to me. Every day, there's the journey. Are you on the journey or not? Are you on the journey? And when I reread the Odyssey a number of years ago, I was very interested to look at it from the standpoint of an older person as opposed to having read it as a youth. And I've mentioned on more than one occasion that our biggest enemies of life are already within us. They're fear and lethargy, fear and lethargy, intimidation by the largeness of the world and the part of us that wants to go to sleep and just hope tomorrow it'll all be better. And as I looked at the various trials that Odysseus and his crew went through, they broke down into those two categories, the fearsome challenges they had from the Cyclops and others. And then the desire for relief, for falling back into the sleep of unconsciousness, such as the Isle of Calypso or the Isle of the Lotus Eaters and so forth. So there it was, right? Almost 3,000 years ago, expressed in outer form, fear and lethargy, fear and lethargy. And about three or four years ago, I adopted for myself a motto that some people have actually put on their bathroom mirrors or their computers or whatever. Very simple model. Shut up, suit up, show up. Shut up is my way of saying to myself, stop whining. There are people out there, not very far from you, that have no home tonight. There are people who don't have enough to eat. There are people in tremendous pain just down the street. You don't have any complaints, all right? 
Just shut up. I'm saying this to myself. Secondly, suit up. Pay your dues. Prepare. Do your homework. Work hard. If you want something, work for it. And thirdly, just show up as best you can. Not show off. Show up. Do the best you can. That's all life ever asks of you. You know? And as simplistic as that sounds, I think it summons us to what we might call a heroic engagement with this short thing we call life. You know, the best definition of life came from Jung, surprise, surprise, who said life is a short pause between two great mysteries. That sums it up pretty well, a short pause between two mysteries. Now, the question is, what do we do with that pause? And if I'm caught up in my fears and mastered by them, if I'm seduced by my own lethargic impulses, I haven't been here. Whatever this life is, figure it out for yourself, but live that as honestly as you can, as humbly as you can, because something inside of you will rise to support you. Of that, I have no question, because I've had the privilege of experiencing that. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the advantages of being a supporter of The Meaningful Life is that you can write in and you can have your letter discussed by me and my guests. And this is the letter I've got to discuss with James. I have these dreams every night, which are markedly different in nature from regular ones. They're never identical, but similar in tone and theme, always around dispossessedness and searching, looking for a meeting place in a building, trying to find a library book which is not there where it should be on the shelf, running through an airport to find a flight, sifting through a container of pills to find the one I need to take, looking for a lost earring. I was not initially bothered by these dreams. I'm a medical clinical academic, and I was deployed into full-time hospital work during the pandemic, working in a system that had been substantially transformed by COVID. I slept very poorly during the second wave and dreamt very little. So I initially assumed the dreams, which are not actually distressing in themselves, were a way of decompressing and processing the stress of the previous four months. But it's four months on. Life is getting back to normal and the dreams continue. I'm able to acknowledge the impact of the pandemic, including the very distressing separation from my family, and I'm taking active steps to manage these. If not the pandemic, then what? My life is finally where I want it to be within certain constraints. I have a job, a house and a cat, no partner, but I'm no longer miserable about that. It has taken a decade of therapy to allow me to claim and make the life I want for myself. I'm a little frightened that this is a call to something beyond what I have. Really, I would just prefer to relax and enjoy what I have. At this moment, I do not have the energy of anything more. I'd be very grateful for any light that you can shed on this. So, James, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, just for your viewers' information, sleep research tells us we average six dreams per night, which is an extraordinary amount of activity by our psyche. It has to be serving some purpose to this organism. And it's true that if we pay attention to that imagery over time, we begin to realize 
there's something inside of me that's producing those dreams. I'm not creating it from an ego standpoint. So there's something inside of me that's seeking some form of expression. And it would make sense to pay attention to whatever it is that's producing those dreams. Now, with regard to the specific person here, the dreamer you just cited, I don't know all the context, of course, and so I can't say too many things that are specific, but I would say that it sounds to me as if this is a person who has come through a lot of struggles and a lot of stresses and reached a pretty good accommodation with herself. And yet the imagery of the dream seems like there's still something amiss. There's still some missing piece in all this. And I can't presume to know what that is, of course, but I would say two areas of inquiry. One is it's quite possible that the biggest issue of that dreamer is actually accepting herself as she is, that that's the missing piece, the feeling that's like, if I can just settle into my own skin, if you will, into my own body, feel at one with my own heartbeat and my own soul, and feel this is fine, this is, this is right, this is good, and not have to prove anything, not have to demonstrate something, I could imagine that would produce a much greater sense of homecoming for this individual. Now, on the other hand, and these two ideas, I think, are not contradictions, but maybe both true at the same time, there's always something else for us to grow into, always. I mean, part of what i am just been describing is living productively in the face of medical issues, dealing constructively with aging, accepting limitations of the body, but not being bound by them either. You know, Yeats said, souls sing, clap hands, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress, indicating in so many words that for every outer diminishment, there has to be an inner psycho-spiritual enlargement for us to sustain this journey. So I, I could imagine also for this dreamer, there is still something important for her to address in her own life and maybe feeling blocked by fear or lack of confidence or something like that, that that's the enemy. I would encourage her to take a step into pursuing what other pieces she desires for her life. So th these are two different thoughts understandably very vague, because I don't really know the dreamer. On the one hand, I think there's a summons here to self-acceptance. I hear underneath the text a sense of having had to work very hard to find her place in this world and, and to feel relatively satisfied with that. Well, that project continues, but ultimately it's, it's the degree of acceptance and being at home at home, as it were, but also realize our journey is forever one of challenge and discovery. And it doesn't have to be onerous and a burden. It doesn't have to be fearsome. It can be simply following the area of one's curiosities, pursuing the desire for a richer experience of some kind. And that, too, is not incompatible with self-acceptance. So that's, that's just my first response to these dreams. And I was thinking of your comments earlier about our temptation to lethargy. And it's an understandable one to say, you know, I'm exhausted and I want to rest here. 
and comes a point where resting here is actually sinking into the mud, so to speak, if I'm sure, sort of sure. not mixing sure. metaphors. No, absolutely right. That's why I, I said I think two issues here are probably a greater degree of self-acceptance and feeling the worth of that selfhood. But life's always a challenge. You know, maybe it's time, having rested a moment, to step into the next stage of the journey. What does your life call you to? One of the ways I put it before is first half of life, you have to report to the world. Second half of life, you report to your own soul. And if you don't do that in a conscious way, you'll be in service to your former adaptations to the world out there. And it's not really your life. It's a series of adaptations. So the question for all of us, excuse me, go ahead. I was going to say, you'll still be reporting to your parents, even if they've been dead for 30 years. Count on it. They're always present. Yes. (laughs) Always present. Are you still reporting to your parents? Well, of course, they're there because these are our primal paradigms for relationship. They're always there. And they involve some existential issues like, is the other reliable? Are they trustworthy? Am I valued in and for myself? Or do I have to twist myself into something that's acceptable to them, you see? So those issues don't go away. They continue. The question is, to what degree do they still have some sovereignty in your life? And that's what you have to address. So thank you for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Well, I think I've been describing it. I'm privileged to be part of a conversation with my clients or patients. I feel I'm in dialogue with history itself because I've always loved speculation on matters that, to me, count. And I I love writing. I have a wonderful relationship with my wife. I'm uh, exploring new ideas. I wish I could travel more right now. We've just been limited by the pandemic, but hopefully that time will come. So I look forward to further travel, including into the UK. And all in all, I would say I can't imagine my life being more meaningful than it is right now. And I don't say that with any sense of vanity or accomplishment. It's something that I have learned the hard way through a a lot of uh, misturns and blind alleys in history, as we all do. And in the end, you have to trust something inside. And if you don't have that link, then that's your issue. In 1863, the American poet Emily Dickinson said once, the sailor cannot see the north that knows the needle can. And I think she was very acutely aware of the erosion of the outer powers of church and state and so forth, other external authorities that had basically defined people's lives and the increasing importance for an internal compass. So I think she was saying, if you can have a compass and you can learn to dialogue with it and trust it, it will tell you what's true north in your life. With that, you can make choices that are appropriate to do, without which you're going to be responding to whatever is the shrillest demand in your environment or the most archaic of your internalized voices from your own history. Well, this is the point, unfortunately, where we're going to end the conversation with James, unless you're a member of our supporters circle, when he's going to tell me the three things he knows deep down to be true. 
You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.